Open in your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis chapter 35. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about Chuck Swindoll, uh, the longtime radio preacher and pastor of uh, Frisco Bible Church uh, north of Dallas. He uh, told a story about when he and his family were growing up. And uh, Chuck grew up in Houston, uh, moved around some, but uh, in one neighborhood where he lived, uh, there were some next-door neighbors that seemed to have everything in the world that a family could possibly have in those days. His family was much more modest. They, they didn't have much at all. But uh, what they did have were the things that money could not buy. They had a lot of joy, a lot of love, a lot of unity. And one Christmas, uh, they were gathered together, uh, the Swindoll family, and they were singing together and laughing. And uh, they were together that way. Now, you, if, only if you've lived in a port city in the southern United States could you understand this, but the windows were up uh, on that Christmas day. It was warm enough to have the windows open on that day, and uh, uh, the mom looked uh, and said, you know, we're singing so loudly. We're going to bother the neighbors. Let's close them. And so they closed the windows, and right after, got a phone call from this family next door. And they said, why did you close the windows? They said, well, because we were afraid that uh, we would bother our, you and the rest of our neighbors. And they said, no, bother us, disturb us, absolutely not. That's the most beautiful singing we've ever heard. Open them back up. And they did. That's the kind of family that that pastor grew up in. That is not the kind of family that you find in the book of Genesis. More likely what you find in Genesis are marriages and families that are like this. One young lady came to her mother and said, Mom, should I marry Freddie? And her mother said, I don't know. Go ask your dad. He did a much better job on a marriage partner than I did. <laughs> Those are the kinds of families that you have in the book of Genesis. If A.B. were here, he would say that man outpunted his coverage. Uh, and uh, she fumbled. But uh, anyway, uh, that's what you've got in the families in Genesis. I, I want to review for you just a moment what you have. In Genesis chapter 3, you've got catastrophic disobedience by the first parents that brought evil, sin, and suffering into the world. Genesis 4, a brother murders a brother. Genesis chapter 9, Noah gets drunk and blames his son. Genesis 25, uh, you've got parents who favor one child over the other. One parent's got a favorite child, the other parent has a different favorite child. Genesis 25, Esau has no respect for the things of God. Genesis 27, Jacob manipulates. Genesis 29 through 30, sisters become rivals and they use their children as pawns in the rivalry. Genesis chapter 35 here in this text is where we are landing today and what you find here is idolatry. Idolatry in Jacob's family after several encounters with God. God says something to him in Genesis chapter 35 that you've got to understand the context. Back in Genesis chapter 28, Esau is fleeing his brother because his brother wants to murder him too. Uh, his brother didn't have the opportunity that Cain had with Abel. And so Jacob is leaving and on the way God meets him and gives him a vision of a ladder that extends from heaven to earth. And he sees angels ascending and descending and the ladder is not there to indicate to Jacob that by his own labor he's got to climb the ladder. It's not so Jacob could get up, it's that heaven could get down to him. And that's why God gave that. In John chapter 1, 
verses uh, 50 and 51, Jesus will say, I'm that ladder. I'm that ladder. I am the way to God, and I am the way God gets to you. And that's the vision that Jacob had. And there God made him a promise about his protection, about his land, about his purpose in life, his descendants, and all of that has come true through these many centuries. There, Jacob, for the first time in his life, met God. He spends about 20 years uh, away. He begins to return, but he only returns partially. For about 20 year, 10 years, he dwells in Shechem, and all manner of chaos breaks loose in that land because God told him to go to Bethel, and he only went as far as Shechem. He did a little of what God wanted him to do, but he didn't do everything God wanted him to do. And so disaster breaks loose in chapter 20, 34, and what we find here in chapter 35 is God's renewal of Jacob. He tells him, get your family back to Bethel. Get your family back to Bethel, beginning in verse number 1. Then, ja then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was at Shechem. Then in verse 5, they journey. In verse number 8, Rebekah's nurse passes away. And in verse number 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he'd come from Padan Aram and blessed him and said, Your name is Jacob. Your name should not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in a place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him. A pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it. And he poured uh, oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Get your family back to Bethel. Make sure your family revisits Bethel. Make sure you get your family back to the most important and significant encounters in your life. That's what happens here. A family, no matter how distressed, a marriage, no matter how distressed, can find a new day, hope empowering God, when it gets back to the basics of Bethel. There is hope for your marriage and family from God. Whenever you master the basics of Bethel. Well, what are those basics? Well, one happens to be back to, back to uh, salvation. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've opened up your heart to Him, you've repented and placed faith in His cross and resurrection, the Bible teaches that you've been saved, don't ever, ever get over it. That wasn't a small moment. It was a big moment. That wasn't insignificant. That was the most significant thing that ever happened to you. Make sure you always appreciate and erupt in joy when you consider your salvation and think about it often. Never, ever, ever 
get bored with the notion that God has saved you. It makes all the difference in this world and the next. Back to salvation. Now, that's what happens here in this text, in verse 1. He says, go back to Bethel where I saved you. Or, if it were he was speaking to me, he'd say, go back to 930 Aspen Court where God saved you. Or, if he was speaking to my wife, go back to the bedroom uh, on Carpenter's Mill in Maryville, Tennessee, where I came into your heart and your life and turned you to my grace. Go back to where you were saved and take your family with you. Jesus would say, I am that Bethel. I am that one that appeared. I am the latter. I am the only way. Go back to what the Bible teaches about salvation. I came to Christ after a life of uh, abandonment and a life of difficulty and death and divorce and struggle and all sorts of difficulty in my family. I came brokenhearted. I remember, uh, I, or I, uh, I came to Christ uh, the evening I realized that all the things I'd hoped and dreamed for since I was a boy were not going to become true. That I was not going to realize those dreams. That was not going to happen. I had had uh, some dreams since I was a little boy and I labored and we spent money on it. We, we gave ourselves to that as a family and I just wasn't good enough and I was broken hearted. And I realized I was broken hearted because I was pursuing what I wanted for myself. I was not pursuing what God wanted for my life. I, and I knew better. I'd been to church enough to know Jesus Christ is to be Lord. So I got on my knees beside my bed. I repented and placed faith in Christ. I called on God to save me. I told him I was sorry for living in rebellion against him. And I told him I trust the death and resurrection of Christ. And I told him, I'm giving my life to you. I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. And I got up off that knees, and I believe that night or the next night, I began to read my Bible, and it came alive for the first time. It came alive. And I started seeing solutions to my problems in the Bible. And when I prayed, I felt close to God. I had never sensed His presence before. I felt like He was always distant. No matter how much I reached out and tried to lay hold of Him, He was distant. And I began to tell people about what happened to me. And then God began to guide me with what to do with my life, about where to um, go to school and, and eventually who, who to marry and how to raise children and how to serve. And I've got to say to you, I don't mean to brag, but I've gotten the big decisions right because God is right. And God has directed me all the way through. Now I can hear somebody saying, well, David, I didn't come to Christ at that age. I, I came when I was much younger or maybe older. And my conversion experience, well, goodness gracious, it's not nearly as dramatic as yours. Hey, listen to me. Every conversion experience is as dramatic as anyone else's. Every Christian has had a dramatic conversion experience. It may be, however, that your life before Christ was not nearly as drama-filled as someone else's. Oh, let me give you an illustration. Um, imagine you're painting your home. And on the inside and the outside, you have a dark brown. You decide to paint inside and outside white. Let's just imagine that's the case. So you go from a dark brown to a white. That's going to be a dramatic change, is it not? Well, let me ask you this. Let's say that you're the interior and the exterior of your home is not a dark brown. Let's imagine that instead the interior and exterior of your home happens to be a light cream color. And you decide to paint it white. 
Well, is that as much a dramatic change? Yes, because at the end of both cases, they are both pristine white on the outside. Uh, you, you may not have the background I have, and I may not have the background that you've got, but ladies and gentlemen, the end result is the same. Whether you have what others would call a dramatic conversion experience or not, it is still dramatic because along with those who've had a dramatic conversion experience, you're going to the same heaven. You have the same grace. You believe in the same crucified, risen Savior. You've met the same Jesus. You've got the same promises of God. You've got the same presence of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing lacking in your walk with Jesus Christ, your potential, and the possibilities of your life over or beyond or below anyone that's ever had a dramatic conversion experience. They are all dramatic because Christ is the Lord of your salvation. Hey, go back to that. Be thrilled with it. Be excited about it. And as you are, you're going to make a difference in your family's life. It's going to make a difference. I do know of one fellow walked out of a church one Sunday where uh, the music, un unlike here, was more like a funeral service. And it was, uh, uh, well, frankly, quite boring. And after the service, somebody met with him and talked with him and transitioned, tried to transition to the gospel and asked him, do you think you'll ever become a Christian? And he said, well, after that service, I sure hope not. The, the reason some people do not want the Christian faith is because they don't see any excitement or thrill in appreciation and gratitude for Jesus Christ. Get back to the Bethel of salvation. But there's a second thing. Not only the Bethel of salvation, but go back to the Bethel of worship. That's what he does here. In verse number one, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God. That's where they worship. So there's a command here to observe worship. Every Christian is to give themselves to daily personal and family and corporate worship in the church of God. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. They had a problem with church attendance in the first century. And so he said, it's the habit of some. Do not do that. Do not forsake. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, the Bible says that Jesus went to the synagogue as corrupt, as dusty, as boring, as dry, and as lifeless as a synagogue could be, Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. If attendance at worship was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for anyone else. Well, Jacob is doing this with his family. It's a command. And then there is some construction involved. Verse number 7. Look what he does here. And Jacob built an altar there. He actually constructed an altar. He put some labor into his worship. He stretched. He gave himself. He perspired. He built an altar and worshiped God there. There is some labor that goes into worship, whether it's daily waking up a little earlier and looking to God and his word, whether it's gathering the family around a table and reading scripture and praying for the needs presented there, or even coming to a place like this, there is some construction involved. You say, well, my family, we've never gotten around the table and had a family altar or family worship. Well, today's the day to begin. Uh, just simply read the scripture that you read this morning and ask people for prayer requests and lead them. Well, I've never prayed out loud. Well, you know what? They're going to be so nervous when you do, they won't notice how nervous you are. Go ahead and do it. Just pray. 
and ask God to bless them. And you're setting a marvelous example, and they're going to be patient with you as you struggle through it. Uh, then maybe you, you'll want to take sermon notes. And uh, every day during the week, cover one of the divisions, one of the points that the sermon makes, and, and follow that. They're all online, by the way, and um, you can listen and perhaps grow through that. I spend about 20 hours a week uh, preparing for messages, so I get myself into it. I, I don't know if you can tell or not, but I, I, I put something into it. And more than that, the biblical text is priceless. And so you, you can use that. They're, they're family devotion guides. But whatever you do, return to the Bethel of worship. But there's a third thing, and that is get back to the Bethel of repentance. Get back to the Bethel of repentance. What is repentance? Well, I didn't say penance, which are works that show a changed attitude. I'm talking about what comes before penance, the biblical requirement and qualification for meeting and walking with Jesus Christ. Repentance. Uh, repentance involves the total person. Everything a person is in saying and rejecting what God prohibits and embracing what God loves. So whatever God prohibits, your total person rejects it. And whatever God loves, your total person loves it. Your total person embraces it. In your mind, you change your mind about it. Uh, there is some kind of behavior there's some kind of lack, there's some kind of laziness, there's some kind of um, uh, uh, attitude, there, there's a certain pattern of words, and you discover in God's word that God rejects that, and so you reject, you change your mind about it, it's no longer acceptable, and, and you change your mind. And, and then your heart abhors it. It, it, it abhors it. In other words, it, 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 you would abhor it as if you just discovered somebody with a rattlesnake in their pocket. You abhor such a thing. Not, not that you're condemning others, but yourself. You abhor that you ever got involved with it. You have a godly sorrow about it. And then once you have that, that leads to your life changing. Some change in life. That's what repentance is, and that's what we find here in the text. We find repentance. And the repentance, then, is not only a change of the total person, you're really turning from sin, and you're turning fully to God. Now, there's some, there's some people that make a big mistake at this point. All they do is they say no to sin, but they never come to the point where they say yes to God. For some, it never occurs to them. Some of them have never been instructed. Some, frankly, don't want to. But when you repent, according to the Scripture, you say no to what God prohibits. You reject what God prohibits, and you turn to God in what he loves. And that's what happens here in the text. God then becomes the Lord and master over all. So when we repent, we put God over all. Verse number 2, Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. They had some idolatry there. They were looking to other gods, and Jacob says this is coming to an end. He collects them and he buries them. He doesn't melt them down and have the temptation of using them again in a way that might be inappropriate. He buries them. He rids the family of them, and God is going to be the only God of this family. Let me say to you, if your family has more than one member in it, there is always pressure to surrender to other gods. Jacob resisted this, 
And so God was over all. But that's not all. Not only was God over all when he repented, but God was before all. God is before all. Look at verse number four. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. These things are valuable. Do you know that around the world and through the centuries that merchants have made a lot of money in idolatry? Idolatry is big business around the world. Merchants who sell them or craft them make an awful lot of money from them. And what they're doing here is that by giving up their idols and earrings that apparently had some pagan significance, they are giving up an awful lot financially in order to follow Almighty God. So God comes before what it is that they want. In families, God has got to be the only God. When we repent, we say no to what God prohibits. We say yes to what God loves. And may I say to you, when there's trouble in a marriage and a family, that's what's got to happen. Anytime through the years I've ever counseled with anyone, a married couple, a family, an individual, I let them know up front, got to let them know that the first step into healing a troubled marriage or family is to surrender and yield yourself to doing things God's way. No matter how many apologies that requires, no matter how many confessions to others and to God that will require, there is no settling a problem until it is settled God's way. That is the hope of every marriage and of every family. So we go back to the Bethel of repentance. But there's a fourth item here as well, and that is back to urgency, back to the Bethel of urgency. The uh, mother of a colleague of mine at Southwestern, his mother was passing away, and she uh, gathered uh, everyone together, and she looked at her family, and she said to her godly family that she had raised in the nurture and admonition of Christ, she said, I have taught you how to live. Now I'm going to show you how to die. And that's what you have in this text from verses 16 to 29. You've got some death and you've got some responsibilities as well. It's important to be urgent about getting back to Bethel. Why is that? Well, verses 18 and 19 and 28 and 29, some people end up passing and dying. Death is coming. Hell is moving in this text. Uh, Verse 18 and 19, Rachel passes away. It says in verse 18, And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name, her son, she died in childbirth, right after childbirth, Ben-Ani. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. So Rachel passes, and then Isaac passes in verse number 28. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died. While you still have your family, While you still have your life, urgently and quickly get back to Bethel. Get back with God. Get back with salvation. Get back with worship. Get back with repentance. But that's not all. There's not only death here, but there are also needs. There are needs. Verse 22, at the end of verse 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. Jacob has a whole family They're marrying up and having their own children. So he has a whole household, and there are needs to meet. 
It reminds me when I was a boy, there was a song that came over the radio station by Kenny Rogers. And he uh, sang, you picked a fine time to lead me, Lucille. Four hungry children and a crop in the field. Do you remember that? You poor thing. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I listened to that song when I was a boy. I didn't have any choice, but I listened to it, and I recall thinking uh, and, and being confused about the song. I didn't hear four hungry children. I heard four hundred children. <laughs> and I thought to myself, no wonder that poor woman left. Ladies and gentlemen, Jacob is going to have a household that large eventually. And when they go to Egypt, there, there's at least 70 of them. And, and no telling the others that end up joining them and the servants that they end up having. There are needs to meet. There, there's an awful lot to give. And death is coming and it never takes a holiday. It is important to hurry up and do what God wants you to do. Do what the Word says. Do what the Spirit is leading you to do. One mother on her deathbed is dying of cancer, and she said, I, I'm, all my affairs are settled. I'm at peace. I'm going to go very soon. Pray for yourselves, because you too are terminal. You just don't know your date. Every one of us is terminal. It's important to do and to hurry at doing what God wants us to do and to do it now. Well, what do I do with this message? How do I apply this? Jesus came preaching the gospel in Galilee, and his first sermon was on this text. Mark 1.15. Listen carefully. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus stood on the earth, it was go time. Now's the time. Now, if it was time 2,000 years ago, if it was go time 2,000 years ago, what is it now? We've only counted down further and quicker to the appearance of the King of Kings. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not on the next continent, the next country, the next state. It's not even in the next county. It's not on the next street. It's at hand. It is that immediate. Because Jesus was present then, and he's present now where two or three are gathered in his name. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe in the gospel? Well, yesterday, my family and I spent uh, the better part of the morning, just about all morning, in the front, in the side, in the backyard, cleaning out weeds. Oh, it's awful what happened in our yard over the last 12 months. We were out of the country for a year. It rained all night and all day for what seemed like 12 months here in Georgia. And weeds had, in large part, taken over at least my side yard and backyard and a good part of the front yard. And so the family and I got into the front yard, and we dug them out, completely out. We started with the front yard. Then we went to the two sides. And I got to the backyard, and I thought, they have been working very, very hard. You would have been impressed. You would have really been impressed by how hard uh, they worked, from the oldest of them to the youngest. It was amazing. I enjoyed watching them all day long. But I got on my... 
I got on my hands and knees too and took care of it as well. Well, I saw the end coming and I thought, we still have this backyard to do. And it was the worst. It was awful. And I thought, you know what? I think I'll give them a choice. We can do this today or we can wait till next week. And they chose to go ahead and do it then. Well, that made sense because rain's coming. You don't know what we'll be doing next Saturday sometimes. Surprises come up then. And so I changed my mind about when to do something. Not later, but now. You know what will happen? Evil spirits will whisper in your ear and say, what he's saying is right, but don't do anything now. Do it later. Do it now. And so as we got towards the end, and I saw the end coming on the backyard, I decided I'd go pick up lunch for them and come back. And so I had to trust them that they would finish the job without my supervision. Well, there were two girls on the job, so it was supervised very, very well, okay? <laughs> and it got done. So I changed my mind, and I trusted. And that's what God is calling you to do today with Jesus Christ. Change your mind about doing it and do it now. Follow him now. Obey him now. Hurry. Make haste. God wants you to do this. Do it. Do it now. Open your heart to Christ. Follow him in some element of his will. Do what the word says. Change your mind about it and then trust his death and resurrection in his ways. Can you do that today? God would like to help you and we would too. Let me pray for you and after we pray, staff will be here to receive you and help you with your spiritual need. Would you quickly stand with me please and let's pray together. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of the word. And I thank you that now there can be salvation.